This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, happy Friday. Brooke Nindorf with you today. But don't worry, Cassie Huff will still be joining us for the country hour today, but she's in Murray Bridge, so we're going to cross to her very shortly. There's a uh, She's at a community event that's being held for primary producers on the River Murray Flats that have been affected by the current floods. They're meeting to see what sort of support is needed heading forward and, and where to next for the community as well. But also just to get together as a bit of a check-in too. So we'll be heading to Murray Bridge in about half an hour. Also today, farmers on Kangaroo Island have welcomed news that there's more funding to put towards the completion of the feral pigs eradication program. Feral pigs do huge damage, I guess mostly to pastures. Like a mob of pigs can go through and effectively plough a whole paddock in a night. And also fences, pigs are, are obviously quite a strong stout sort of animal and quite damaging on you know pushing holes in fences pushing under fences and then that was leading towards sheep then being able to cross between properties and disease implications by security all those sorts of things so more on that one very shortly but first today while backpackers are returning to australia in force south australian growers are largely missing out Backpacker harvest workers are instead opting for jobs in Queensland and northern New South Wales. Harvest Trail Information Service helps backpackers find harvest work and suggests that during the pandemic, Australia developed a bit of a reputation as the lockdown country, making some backpackers potentially hesitant to work in areas outside of major tourist hubs. Peter Angel, State Manager for HTIS, says this has resulted in an oversupply of backpackers looking for work in the country's northeast. Backpackers are certainly coming back to Australia. We uh, obviously lost them over the COVID period uh, and the numbers are not quite back yet to where they were pre-COVID, but once the borders were open, they started to come back with a bit of a vengeance. Are you seeing any change in trends, whether it be you know where people are travelling from or how they're approaching work when they do arrive in Australia? Uh, yeah, we're seeing a, a really quite interesting change. Uh, in the past, what would happen, a backpacker would arrive they would live the, the good party life in the eastern states where they would arrive or in the tourist areas and only after they've been here for a few months would they decide that they're going to stay a second year, which means that they'd have to go to a regional area to find work. But what we're finding at the moment now is that a lot of them are coming to us saying, look, we're looking for farm work immediately so that we can qualify for that second year visa and they're doing that within their first couple of weeks of arriving. We, we really didn't know why to start with, but there's been a bit of a suggestion that Australia has a bit of a reputation overseas as the lockdown country over COVID, because I believe we were the only country that actually closed our internal borders. So people are not wanting to get caught out when they want to earn their 88 days of work in a regional area. If something like that happens again, and that they find they can't move around to get the work to qualify for that second year, which they put a fair bit of value on. And obviously going from limited backpackers to this influx as you mentioned, not quite what it was pre-COVID, but still a lot of people arriving at a similar time. What are some of the challenges that communities can then face and these workers face when they do start or look for work? Look, one of the big challenges is for them to realise how big Australia is, particularly when they come from uh, Europe or some of the Asian countries that are part of that program. They're very high-density 
population areas and they've got lots of public transport and they're often very physically fairly small compared to Australia. If you uh, if you have a look at a, a map of Australia superimposed either Europe or the United States, you can see that how big Australia is and, and often we do that to show those people how far they have to travel to get work. So what they need to realise is when they get here, they need to be able to get effectively go and buy a car. The traditional backpacker sleeping out of a van is a really, really good option for them. But we've found that because they are starting to look for that work almost immediately on arriving, they haven't really got any savings yet to buy that vehicle. Most of the hostels in regional areas are working hostels and they will often assist travelling workers with transport out to farms or wherever the work is. But we've lost a lot of those hostels over COVID that either closed their doors and were converted to some other use. Um, some of them have reopened, but not all. And a lot of them also have been taken up with the, the PALM program, the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Program, which has been excellent for farmers, but what it means is some of those beds are simply not available for those budget beds for backpackers as well. So there's less choices available. Accommodation is probably a bigger issue than it was before. Where are most of these workers going? I mean, which states are really seeing these people come through? Well, backpackers, when they arrive, they definitely land in the, the key ports of Sydney and Melbourne and to a lesser extent to uh, up in Queensland as well. And then they'll often head to the areas where we, we promote ourselves overseas, the tourism, the golden beaches, that sort of thing. So what we're finding at the moment, we've got a bit of an oversupply, uh, dare I use the word, of backpackers looking for work up in Queensland and uh, northern New South Wales. But the harvest offices up there that, that help backpackers get work or and other people as well, but a lot of the backpackers will approach our harvest offices to find work. And we've got waiting lists in the couple of those offices where we've got far more people on that waiting list than actual work available. So our challenge is to try and direct those people to areas, for example, in South Australia, where we've got the wine grape harvest just about to get underway, although it's been a little bit uh, delayed this year, but to places like that where we need the people and there are less of them there. So they're possibly in the wrong places at the wrong times, but of course they, they, they head off to where they think they're going to have good time, and if they're enjoying themselves, they'll stay. But if they put themselves on a wait list for work, sometimes they might be waiting for a while, and we've got to try and encourage them to move to where the work is the most active, most required. And someone that, that does oversee South Australia, Peter, is there usually an appetite for backpackers to come here? How do you entice those people on those wait lists to come down south? Oh, look, the way to entice them when they're looking for work, because the key reason they move to regional areas, obviously there's a bit of a tourism factor as well, And but one of the key reasons that the backpackers move to the regional areas is to do the 88 days work that qualifies them to stay for a second year. And they can stay for a third year too. They've got, a third, they've got to do six months' work to stay for a third year. That work is the main reason they travel to the regional areas and stay in those regional areas. It's a program that started back in 2005 and it's worked really, really well to get people out to the regional areas. But the enticement for them is that work is available now or almost immediately. They don't want to go to an area and find they're hanging around waiting for a harvest that is, is going to start and is delayed and is not available just yet. So they tend to ask about work that's available almost immediately. And sometimes they're not overly realistic along that line because particularly with Mother Nature, uh, things can be delayed or not. Start times are not what they think they're going to be at times. But really that's the key thing for them for this purpose is to make sure that, that we direct them to areas where work is imminent. And looking ahead, it looks positive for these workers continuing to come to our shores, Peter? Absolutely it is. There are two different types of visas. The 417 visa is the one that's been traditional for a long time that people know with, with backpackers out of Europe and some of the uh, Asian countries as well and also Canada has been on the list but there's a 462 visa which is slightly different that has a lot of developing countries involved with that one uh, and in the past there's been different rules about what they can and can't do while they're here but those rules are now are virtually identical between the two groups. The only difference is that some of the developing countries have got either caps on their numbers and they've got some rules about uh, who, who uh, can apply 
apply for a visa such as they have to have a tertiary qualification. The 462 visa, that second visa, there are countries appearing now that we haven't seen in the past. Countries like Argentina, you know, those citizens are making themselves available here and, and they're very keen to work as well. So we're seeing some different countries involved and more countries are coming onto the program. Arvis Trail Information Services, Peter, Peter Angel speaking with Beck Wetham. So are local producers who use backpackers here in South Australia, are they worried? Well, Mount Gambier potato farmer Terry Buckley has backpackers each year help with his harvest and he says if you provide accommodation and treat them well, there are not any problems attracting them to the southeast. No, we've never really had trouble. Housing seems to be a massive help to you if you've got somewhere they can live. And Mount Gambier is a pretty decent centre that we're only 24 k's out of town and, you know, and that's all pretty good, whereas you go out to Perilla and, you know, and all those hot, nasty, deserty looking places, it gets much harder out there. So um, we've just redone the backpacker house, put all new windows in it, painted it, Jackie's been up there flat out getting it ready and so we try and look after them well and, and you've got to be obviously very conscious of your social media that you don't want people putting in bad stories about you or you're in a lot of trouble and and I think that shortage of backpackers might not have been altogether a bad thing because you do hear some awful backpacker stories, how poorly they've been treated. And when backpackers were short, well, the people that weren't doing the right thing were probably not getting any backpackers. Well, how many backpackers do you sort of have coming through seasonally? Oh, somewhere in the six, seven, somewhere up there, six, seven, eight, somewhere like that. Yeah, um, I'm trying to have more and have less of my people that's here all the time doing something else. And even through the COVID, we did quite nicely. We had a lady that was a chef and that sort of thing. So we were able to get people who had lost the, their jobs doing their regular work, which this year, for instance, they wouldn't be available because they're back at you know the jobs they normally do. So we were just lucky there and we didn't get into trouble during the COVID period. It's been, uh, you know, not too, too bad over the time. Mount Gambier potato farmer Terry Buckley speaking with Liz Rymel. Brooke Nindorf with you today. It's a quarter past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, powdery mildew and stripe rust were among the range of plant diseases that came to the fore in the 22-23 crop. The Grange Research and Development Corporation's Adelaide Update this week took a look at how growers can manage those diseases into this year's crop. Agronomy consultant Sam Trengrove explains what the main issues will be for the coming season. In the wheat, for example, we were dealing with high levels of stripe rust in particular. There are also diseases like septoria and, and wheat powdery mildew that were causing issues in, in wheat crops as well. Uh, crops like lentils had botrytis grey mould and also sclerotinia as sort of fairly prevalent diseases and, and ascochyta as well. So I think all crop types, to be honest, had a bigger year for disease. So you could probably go through the whole list and, and rattle them all off. But yeah, there are a few that come to mind. Was there much of a yield penalty as of a result? There could be in certain some circumstances. I think in, in most cases growers did a very good job at managing those diseases given the way the season developed and I guess having to make decisions on the go in terms of availability of fungicide and the ability to get on crops and get them sprayed in a timely manner. But um, there are certainly circumstances where you could identify that yeah, maybe in hindsight we could have done things better and, and got a better result. I guess generally and broadly speaking, I'd say we did pretty well in the circumstances. 
That said, though, it was such a big year and so much disease pressure. What sort of concerns are there now going into 2023 and preparing for the crop this year? Uh, I guess out of a big spring like we've just had, there uh, has been a large amount of inoculum, so spores and and survival structures of those different diseases that will survive over the summer and and have a legacy for uh, the following season and maybe beyond that as well. So we could expect that we'll see higher levels of disease um, following on from the year that we've just had and we'll have to think about that in terms of how we manage it with selection of varieties or or fungicides at sowing time or um, the strategy once the, the season gets underway and of course at this time of the year managing green bridge to break the disease cycle of certain diseases like rusts for in particular um so yeah they're all factors to consider there has been some dry weather through summer after that that wet spring how much of a green bridge is there out there at the moment can't speak for everywhere but i i feel like generally across most regions that there was a need to at least do one pass of, of spraying over summer um, and some areas that have had follow-up rainfall may require a, a second and we'll see how the rest of the summer plays out but I guess just on the back of the way the spring and the early summer period finished off there was probably enough moisture to get an early uh, flush of summer weeds going and, and some uh, volunteers as well which is I guess the volunteers are the, the main thing that would be driving the survival of some of those diseases from last season into this next season for those stripe rust type um, diseases. It was a long harvest. A lot of people have really only just finished, but how much concern is there or, or thought being put, put into dealing with some of these hangover diseases for the 2023 crop? I guess there's a bit of thought going into it. Um, I guess we can be concerned, but it's, it's just... I guess another thing that we need to manage in terms of how we're going to tackle the 2023 crop. There's been, a, I guess, an emphasis on it in the update program today and, and a lot of thought going into that. But um, I guess it's a case of be alert but not alarm type thing. We sort of don't want to preempt the worst case scenario and, and get uh, too stressed about it. But we, yeah, need to give it some thought and, and be prepared for different outcomes. Summer isn't over yet, but how are the subsoil moisture stores looking heading into autumn? I guess we haven't had a lot of rain since harvest, but there's an expectation that some of that moisture from the spring period potentially hasn't been fully utilised by last year's crop, just given how wet it was into the late into the spring period. So where that moisture is sitting at depth, and by depth I'm sort of talking 30 centimetres or deeper, um, provided there aren't weeds sort of pumping it out, we'd expect that to um, be retained in the soil for the following crop. Moisture that's shallow on that, well, yeah, percentage of that will lose to evaporation, but hopefully we can save some of that deep moisture and it might uh, get us out of a dry spell in, in 2023 if we need it. Agronomy consultant Sam Trengove speaking to Cassie Huff. And the 2019-2020 Kangaroo Island bushfires killed more than half of the feral pig population on the island. Feral pigs cause roughly $1 million in damages each year. And with the culling process already started, governments have de- dedicated a further $4.6 million to eradicate the nuisance completely. 872 feral pigs have been culled so far, with fewer than 30 remaining. We heard yesterday that the state government will put a final $191,000 towards the completion of the eradication program. Kangaroo Island farmer Tim Buck shares how the island aims to be totally feral-free into the future. 
in 2019, we assisted in a, a survey and study that was completed on the island, which suggested that pigs were costing farmers on the western end of the island close to a million dollars a year. So it's been a significant issue for uh, landholders on the western end of the island for a long time. So that chat happened in 2019. Is this pre-bushfires? Yes, yeah. So the bushfires were ironically soon after we finished that report in December and January of, of 2019 and 20. Obviously, the bushfires had a, a significant impact on the habitat of the feral pig population, pretty much burning their whole habitat and significantly reducing the amount of pigs that were around. So it gave us a real opportunity to have a, a good crack at eradication, which previously had not been a feasible option because of the inaccessibility and large, vast areas of native vegetation that they habitat in the national parks and the western end. Yeah, so it was quite an opportunistic move to eradicate them with more than half already being killed naturally by those bushfires. So you started the survey before that. Um, whose idea was it originally to work towards the eradication of feral pigs? I think it was probably a joint, a number of different conversations from farmers and, and AKI and FURSA and government over a period of time. Um, it was, as I said, causing a lot of economic damage for the island. So it was a conversation that had been going on for a while. And at that stage, prior to the fires, we'd think it was feasible for eradication. So it was more around getting some numbers on, on what it was actually costing and, and how many pigs there might actually be. And then looking at what we can do to, to better control the numbers. But then, yeah, obviously, as I said, with the fires, that gave us a, a real opportunity to employ some new technologies and have a crack at eradication. What sort of differences have landholders seen on their properties with less feral pigs around? Feral pigs do huge damage, I guess, mostly to pastures. Like a mob of pigs can go through and effectively plough a whole paddock in a night. We had a property out west that it wouldn't have been uncommon to have 20 or 30 hectares completely ploughed overnight by a mob of pigs. So massive impacts in terms of pasture production. Basically, once that paddock's ploughed, well, there pretty much goes all the production on that area for the rest of the growing season. And also fences. Pigs are, are obviously quite a strong stout sort of animal and quite damaging on you know pushing holes in fences pushing under fences and then that was leading towards sheep then being able to cross between properties and disease implications by security all those sorts of things so yeah the reduction in numbers and the increase in the use of vermin proof fencing since the fires has seen yeah really good positive impacts and what about the wider community what's their thoughts about the program did you ever receive any pushback no, not really. Um, uh, like Kangaroo Island's obviously a very uh, natural and, and nature-based sort of island and tourism-based island. So there's lots of positives from that side of it. And then obviously from the farmer's point of view, there's not many farmers around that want feral pigs on their place. So no, generally very little pushback at all. The island's already eradicated feral deer and feral goats and soon, obviously, feral pigs. Are there any future plans to focus on another feral nuisance? It's been a, a significant amount of work, particularly on the eastern end, but also the western end of the island now with feral cat eradication on the eastern end and control on the western end. And now with some of the technologies that they've developed and, and been using in those programs, there's, we're starting to get to a point where there's a real opportunity that we can start to look towards eradication of feral cats on Kangaroo Island.
which is pretty exciting from both agricultural and an ecological point of view. They're obviously very damaging for native bird species and small marsupials like the dunnart, but then they also are a conduit for spreading sarcocyst and toxoplasmosis um, in our sheep industry. And Kangaroo Island has by far the highest rates of those diseases of anywhere in the state, like off the scale compared to the rest of the state. So, yeah, very exciting opportunity that we might be able to move towards trying to eradicate them as well. And then we'll be yeah pushing towards a feral-free Kangaroo Island. Kangaroo Island farmer Tim Buck speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. Let's head to the Weather Bureau now. We're joined by Jenny Horvat. Uh, good afternoon, Jenny. Good afternoon, Brooke. What's happening around the, the state? So we've got a um, low-pressure centre situated southwest of Kangaroo Island at the moment, and it's extending a, a trough over over the state, and that's been slowly moving across from the west overnight and this morning, and it's slowly sort of pushing its way northeastwards. It's probably not going to make it all the way to the to that far northeast corner by the end of the day, but broadly it's it's moving across the the state through there. So bringing some milder conditions to um, more southern parts of the state compared to the hot, very hot day that we saw yesterday. This morning. It did extend quite a lot of um, low crowd across our western districts and some of our central districts as well. And we are starting to see that um, cloud contracting more to the coast and the and the ocean parts as we start to get a little bit of warmth coming across during the day. So it essentially has been a dry change as it's come to come across, um, and so we're not expecting anything too significant with that. But in the wake of this system, we'll still remain in a bit of a west southwesterly airstream, especially across the southern parts of the state as we head into the weekend. So we could be seeing a little bit of uh, cloud around again during the south and the west um, during the weekend mornings and we couldn't rule out a little bit of light precipitation with that uh, across our western and sort of southern coast during the, the weekend mornings, probably maybe more likely around the, the southeastern coast but we're not expecting any significant really rainfall with that and most likely most of that should be should be clearing up during the afternoon and we'll start to see some sunny breaks coming back. So with this trough moving through, like I said, we've got those milder conditions over the weekend for the south, but we are still maintaining some very hot conditions um, across the north of the state for today and across the weekend, and that very hot conditions doesn't really sort of go away, even though we've had this change move through. Following that, we'll get our next high-pressure system developing south of the bite, so those southerly winds will still persist um, early into next week in the south. They're maybe tending a little bit more southeasterly, but as we head um, into sort of the later part of the week and the high drifts away will um, shift more north-northeasterly and we will be in training that hot, very hot air that's been hanging around the north of the, the state um, further west on, on Wednesday and then more broadly across the state on Thursday. So seeing some um, very hot um, temperatures returning towards the middle to late of the of the week there. The only other thing that's maybe going on, there is a little bit of moisture over WA and a bit of a, a bit of a trough through there. So we might see some of that coming across the, the WA uh, border, probably more likely to see that early next week um, than over the, the weekend. And again, we're not expecting too much with that. And it is really to the, the far west, right across that WA border that we could see maybe some shower activity or possibly even some thunderstorm activity. Um, just drifting across from WA, but I think most 
most of the action will be on the WA side, so yeah, not expecting too much with that. So SA is pretty much coming into a bit of a, a dry spell coming through, even though we are seeing some milder temperatures with this trough moving through. So not really any significant rainfall um, forecast. So cumulative we are only sort of looking at, so up until the end of Tuesday with a little bit of moisture lingering over the weekend, generally less than two millimetres, and that's really across our southern coasts and regions and maybe stuck about the, the western coast through there. Um, and if we do see some of that action coming across um, from WA, we could see some totals in that far west near the WA border, maybe pushing up to five millimetres or so, but I guess if it does get really active, we could see a little bit more, but I really feel like that, that activity will stay on the WA side. So um, a little bit milder for the, for the weekend, might be a bit of a cloudy start for the southern parts, but um, remaining pretty dry with some heat coming back towards the end of the week there, Brooke. Thanks very much, Jenny. Jenny Horvat, uh, have a good afternoon. Thank you. Jenny Horvat at the Bureau of Meteorology. And let's have a look at the western lands for tomorrow. For the upper western, sunny uh, winds northwest to northeastly, 20 to 30 kilometres per hour, tending west to southwestly, 25 to 35 k's per hour in the morning, then tending south to southwestly, 20 to 30 k's per hour in the late evening. Overnight temperatures falling to 20 to 25. Daytime temperatures reaching around 40. For the lower western, sunny with overnight temperatures falling to between 16 and 21 with daytime temperatures reaching 33 to 39. Plenty more to come on the country. Our Brooke Nindov with you today but we are going to cross to Cassie Huff very shortly so make sure you stay tuned for that one. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Brooke Nindorf. Brooke Nindorf. Hello, it is Brooke Nindorf here. Thanks very much for your company. Cassie Huff will be with us today. Coming up over the next half an hour, we are going to head to Murray Bridge where Cassie is today. She's at a community event where primary producers are getting together to have a look at the flood support that will be needed moving forward. Also, they're uh, just sort of getting together just to, to catch up because it has been quite a tough few months uh, in the in the lead up and as the floods have come through. So we'll hear from Cassie very shortly. Also, we're going to meet the YouTube farmer who's come all the way from India and he's sharing his adventures online. When mic's on, camera on, I'll start speaking. And uh, people love that thing because all my words coming from heart. They definitely are. A great little story, this one. But I want to hear from you, though. Which farmer or industry do you think would have a great YouTube channel online? I can think of a few, but I want to hear from you. Send me a text on 0467 Before that, let's get the latest from the newsroom with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon, Matt. Hello, Brooke. In the news this afternoon, the Reserve Bank has confirmed that Australians can expect to see at least two more interest rate rises, but it appears to favour a slow and steady approach over any more supersized hikes. The RBA had shocked many by raising rates in half a percentage point increments every month between June and September last year, double its more typical move of 0.25 a percentage point. 
The company that wanted to reopen a gold mine in the Adelaide Hills still has not been told why the mining minister Tom Kutsantonis went against the advice of his department to reject its application. Terramin says the Woodside mine has half a billion dollars in gold and would have employed 140 people in high-paying jobs. It had thousands of pages in its application that the department found would have met all statutory obligations. And the future of four South Australian mayors is under a cloud as they're caught up in a controversy over not filling out disclosure forms. Gifts valued over $500 had to be declared to the Electoral Commission and forms still had to be filled out for councillors who did not receive any gifts. 45 councillors have been stood down, but they can lodge an appeal. More news at one o'clock. Thanks very much, Matt. Matt Coleman with the latest from the newsroom. Brooke Nindorf with you, but uh, Cassie Huff is still with us today. She's just out on the road. She's in Murray Bridge. We're going to cross to her now. G'day, Cassie. What's happening there in Murray Bridge? Hi, Brooke. Yes, I've made the trip down the freeway to Murray Bridge where there is not a cloud in the sky. It is a lovely summer's day here, but uh, it's good It's good to have this weather for people to get together after what has been a really tough time. I, as you've said, I've, I'm at a community event in Murray Bridge, basically dealing with the emergency situation going forward. About 80 farmers and locals have got together to, uh, I guess, reflect on what they've been through. There's a lot of dairy farmers here and others who have had levees breach or they're dealing with water on their properties. There's going to be a very long clean-up. It's uh, not over yet. The river might be starting to drop. A lot of the restrictions might have been lifted, but there's still a long way to go for this community. So this was a chance for them to get together after this harrowing time. Now, Steve Hine is the... uh, one of the instigators of the event today. He is with the Maipalonga Progress Association. He's also an agronomist and he's been working a lot with people in the community. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. So why did you want to see this event go ahead? Basically talking to various groups along, when I say groups, farmers, operators along the uh, Lower Murray River in the last month or so since uh, the, the high, high River arrived, um, it's become very obvious that there's a lot of frustration and angst about the lack of uh, going forward plans. And are you seeing that largely around the water or the, the livestock, the, the way um, the sort of PERS is operating? Where are you seeing the most consternation? I think most of the frustration is the the levels that uh, were probably in, inaccurate or, or poorly forecast for the, the area initially, the, the height of the levee banks, and then at the end of the day, going forward now for recovery, which is what today's all about. And you do, you've got about 80-odd people in the room. You, you even have uh, people from various agencies as well. This event was largely meant to just be a, a breather for the community. I, I was talking to you earlier and you were saying that there are people here who might not have even really left their property or their local area for a couple of months because they've been too worried about what's going on. So what does this sort of event mean? Absolutely. I think today is the first chance that a lot of them have had an opportunity to unwind, uh, especially talking to neighbours or talking to uh, industry people. We've managed to gather quite a few of the departments and agencies here today to come along and, and I guess, show support, hear from the uh, gathered farmers firsthand what they actually require to get started on recovery and and what's important for each of them separately. And what do you think they are going to require? What do they think they need? Uh, The common story I basically uh, think is uh, the understanding of when the trigger point is to start repairing the levee banks, who's going to pump out the water and how is the water going to be pumped out and who's paying for it. 
So for people who may not uh, understand what he's saying there, you've got these levee breaches, particularly along the river, and it's a case that there is still water flowing for the ri- from the river into these irrigation plains and uh, the flats along the river, and how you actually go about repairing that before what. Uh, before the river actually drops completely because it could be months and months given how much water is coming down the river, how you actually repair a river, a levee while water is still going through it. And it's a, it is a tricky question. But uh, just how concerning is it for, for growers, people who particularly need grass for their livestock, uh, to see this water sitting around now on the wrong side of the levee? Uh as people that aren't living it, we can't actually comprehend it. It is enormous. It is everything for them. They have no income. They have no, in a lot of cases, they had to offload their stock, both dairy and beef cattle, etc. Uh, those that produce fodder, um, they can't produce fodder. So it is everything. Because the, the ground sort of sours, it goes anaerobic, and uh, you can't really grow anything. For, for how long? Yeah, well, that's the million-dollar question at the moment is until we start the process, or not we, but to the um, people, powers-to-be, start the process, there is no time plan, and, and that's what's probably the most frustrating part for the farmers is they just have had nothing up till today. This is a particularly fertile part of South Australia, though. These are alluvial plains. It's magic country. It's why they can produce so many different things in this part of the world. Is there going to be any sort of upside given this country it has evolved to to have flooding? Absolutely, Cassie. Uh, At the end of the day, the last time an event like this happened, as we all know, was in 56. And um, they, old-timers that are still around, tell us um, proudly that the best pastures they've ever grown was following 56, the renovations and that, with all the nutrients and um, other stuff that was, I guess, left, um, without getting technical, left in the soil, um, utilised. Going forward, We've got a lot better pastures, we've got a lot better technology, we've got a lot massive improvement on water management, albeit the irrigation side, not, not the flood side. So uh, there is just a bigger and better um, going forward, but we've just got to get started. Get this water away. Is there a concern about salt, though? If this water does stick around and evaporate, could there be issues with salt? Look, at the end of the day, salt's always part of the game. Uh, while the water's fresh, uh, it won't be such an issue and the uh, water on top of the ground um, has leached any of the salt issues or should have uh, leached any of the salt issues currently down at depth. So not initially, but that'll be something that will come up again as when we go back into a dry phase, we'll have acid issues again. Um, it's just part of what is happening on the river. So going forward, what does your community need? What are perhaps the the top three things that you would say to the community and government about what this community needs? I think the general consensus of those that are gathered here today and and those that haven't been able to make it is who, when and how. Um, It's that simple. Who's going to pay for it? Who's going to do it? When is it going to start? And... um, how, how is it going to happen? There's already, I've just had one farmer coming out here to talk to you, tell me how it should be done. Now, he was probably talking with his heart as to how it could be done in 10 days, but the way the government and all the other red tape that we've got to get through these days, it's going to be a bit longer than that, and that's the unfortunate part. Well, Steve Hine, you've been uh, certainly supporting a lot of people in this community and I'm sure a lot of people are grateful you instigated this event. So thank you for having a chat to me today. I'm sure we'll hear a lot more from you through the the coming weeks. Now, Joe Ann Pfeiffer is a grower, a beef producer and cheap producer at Long Flat, which is on the other side of the river from Murray Bridge, but not too far away. Good afternoon. Hello, Casey. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, uh, I think... 
you live in a pretty spectacular part of Australia, really, by, by normal, when you're in normal standards, by the looks of things. We do. It is amazing. Um, I have always and will always profess this to be the best part of the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, we can grow some amazing pastures, produce some wonderful milk for the dairy industry, but beef and sheep, and there are amazing opportunities here, and we're going to get them back. So you are basically just over the other side of the river from Murray Bridge, just a little bit further downstream, and you grow, you produce beef and sheep. You used to be a dairy farmer, so you understand what the dairy farmers have been going through as well. But what actually happened on your property? Um, our property actually breached in the 7th of January on a, on a Saturday morning, early in the morning. We, ha we sit behind a government levy-owned bank, and so we'd been working with the Department for Water to see what we could do. We spent uh, many days laying thousands of sandbags in the area that we anticipated were too low to manage the flows that were coming and unfortunately for us it breached in the area we, we were advised was the highest for the levy bank. So um, it breached overnight. It filled up. We have 135 hectares of area in our Long Flat Irrigation Trust and that area filled up in six hours with water. We anticipate there's probably three gigalitres of water sitting out there in front of us. My goodness. And it's, I take it it's not going anywhere? Uh, no, it won't. Um, at the moment, the breach is still um, open to the river because the river's still higher than what we have. So some, depending on the wind factor, some days some water goes back out and some days it comes back in. So, yeah, it's... But today, um, this week, it's, it's been a delight. Just the simple things in life. I've been able to drive out my front driveway. Oh, that, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous that that becomes a highlight for you. But how have these weeks been following that? Um, it's been very constant. We've had to change our management overnight into things and make decisions that we never anticipated we would have to do. We ha obviously had to get all our stock off our, on our flats this time of the year from um, late spring till late autumn. We grow all our feed on the, on the flats in the pastures and we have all our stock. So we, we ran 200 head of beef cattle and 2,000 sheep and we have none of that now. So we've had to make very quick decisions. Um, my husband and I have decided to um, sell most of our breeding beef stock. So that's pretty hard. But that's in the hope that the, my daughter and son-in-law who work with us on the farm are able to do something about with their sheep enterprise and hang on to that as long as they can. And that's using your land or adjustment? Uh, yeah, no, they lease some land from us. And well, fortunately, we have been able to find some adjustment for some of those sheep. So we, we're actually in a partnership with them with that. But they're the future. And, you know, they bothered to come home five or six years ago and because they knew the potential of the area that mum and dad had been on for decades. So they're the future. They're the ones we've got to make sure survive, and they will. That is just such a tough time to go through. Um, anyone who's uh, got livestock knows how tough it is to sell livestock under a pressure situation. Looking forward, though, we heard from Steve Hine about some of the things that people need. What are you looking for from uh, the support organisations? I suppose the first thing is support. You know, we, this, we're in our fifth week of this event for us now, and up until today, we've had very little contact from any support agency. I do have to say primary industries have been very good. They've had people on the ground and working with the farmers locally. But other than that, it's been extremely silent. And in the end, as farmers, the frustration got too much and we just had to organise something for ourselves. You, you have been among the people organising today. What are you hoping the community gets out of the, the event of just coming together? 
uh, the event to come together will hopefully reinstate the strength of our community. And even though we've got people here who have been inundated with water and those who are still anxiously waiting to see if they will be inundated, we are one community and we are going to take on board a catch cry that I've heard from Alex Zimmerman, who's the uh, state flood recovery coordinator, and that is build back better. And that's exactly what we're going to do. So hopefully we're giving the people here the confidence to know that somebody is finally listening to them and somebody wants to hear what they have to say and somebody wants to involve them in the decisions that are going to be made. There's a lot to uh, take on through the, the coming weeks and months and I hope you're able to get that water off your land because is it just for people who may not know, you said actually in that presentation that you did that the photos don't do it justice. Can you describe perhaps what it is that you have been looking at and dealing with in a way that photos can't explain? I. Uh, from my personal my personal uh, um, application is that, yeah, every day you look out any window in our house and all you see is water. It's great to see the pelicans fishing. That means the water's of pretty good quality. So it's, it's, it doesn't smell? Not at the moment. As it disconnects completely from the river, I anticipate it will. But um, for the environment, this is amazing. This is just wonderful and we will get good pastures back. But, yeah, it's, it's pretty tough. Well, I'm sorry you've been through this and hopefully you get the support you need and that everyone in this room, it's clear you've got a wonderful community. There's a lot of people here today and there's a lot of people who care in this community. I mean, I came down here to Mapalonga for the Ag Town of the Year and just saw how much community spirit there is here. So hopefully that will get you all through. Thank you so much for chatting to me. That was Joanne Pfeiffer, who is from Long Flat in the uh, Murraylands region. She has been in her property, her beef property has been inundated and they've had to sell their cattle, which is a really tough decision to make. Uh, I'll have more from this community event, but uh, given we're talking about some of the, the wonderful industries that are in this part of the world, Landline is featuring some of that this weekend. So here's some details on what you might see on Landline this weekend. This week on Landline, devastation in WA's Kimberley region, rebuilding in central New South Wales, and the upside of flooding, revived wetlands for birds. It feels very special, I think, when you come into these places. And, you know, we have sort of between 30 and 50,000 breeding pairs in here. You're maybe the only person that these birds have seen so far. That's Landline, Sunday, 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Let's head back to Cassie Huff now in Murray Bridge. Uh, g'day again, Cassie. Hi, Brooke. Yes, it's, uh, it's about 14 minutes to one and uh, this event is drawing to a close, but there are a lot of organisations here trying to talk to people, find out what they need. And uh, one of the people, one of the key organisations that are going to be involved in the recovery is the Department of Primary Industries and Regions. And I'm joined by Professor Mehdi Darudi, the CEO of PERSA. Good afternoon. Good day. Good day. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So you've come down to meet with primary producers and farmers, people living in this area. What's the main concern you're fielding from people here? Uh, firstly, I need to say a great number of people um, here and uh, very good comments uh, we have been hearing. number of different agencies from Department of Premier Cabinet uh, to uh, Department of Environment Water and also my own department, uh, some Commonwealth colleagues. 
uh, they are in presence. Um, there obviously um, is a very, very good start in terms of the recovery to hear more in a very cohesive and collective way that what are the issues associated with the floodplains and uh, uh, swamps that we need to consider into the future. Uh, main concern from uh, many of people that we have been talking about is uh, the timing that is going to take to uh, resolve some of the issues associated with uh, uninundated areas. Uh, it will take some time, uh, recovery always is after response in terms of emergency disaster, natural disaster that will happen. Um, it's important to properly identify the differences between different districts because we do have up to about 19 areas at least that they have been uninundated. And the situation are very different in these areas, one from the other. Some areas, for instance, they need to be dewatered, water to be put back into the river before we can look into the levee. Some other areas is about fixing or, or repairing the levee before you can do any dewatering. The key point here, Cassie, is that we need to really gather as much as information and intelligence that we need that as a, in, in, a, in a way that the whole of government could uh, make a decision in relation to uh, steps that we need to take. Uh, so you're looking at it from a whole of government point of view because you mentioned a few things there that I would have thought would have been uh, the Department of Water and Environment looking at the levees and the water. Where will PERSA fit in with the levees? It seems to be the main concern is getting this water off the floodplain and back in the river and getting these levees fixed. We are having very close collaboration with Department of Environment and Water. Our officers constantly meet with each other and exchange uh, our notes. Um, we definitely need their input because at this stage the levies are part of the uh, portfolio that they have. Um, there are always differences between a flood levy and irrigated or agricultural levies. Uh, as far as I am concerned, we just need to work together. Uh, agriculture industry is a stakeholder for Persa. We have responsibility here to be out there to hear firsthand what the problem is, where to go from here, and uh, I believe strongly that uh, with the uh, uh, cohesive work of the recovery coordinator, Alex Zimmerman, uh, Persa, uh, Jew, and Department Premier Cabinet, we will have a way forward in terms of dealing with this issue. I know Persa has been watching... Um Blackwater events quite closely as well. I'm not aware of any that have happened, but I know it's something you've been watching closely. Do you have any concerns around that? That's a very good point you raised because I wanted um, your um, audience to uh, know that uh, we have been working on a number of matters throughout the response. Uh, Blackwater and monitoring that is one that what's affected is going to have on fish kills. Uh, while we didn't have black water, we did have occasions that fish kills happen. 
And, and in those uh, events, we made every effort to make our way to address the issue. Um, Blackwater sometimes with more higher volume of the water may not happen at all. We still keep looking and monitoring that. But uh, there is a good chance because of the volume of the water that we had in this particular flood that we don't come across any. But we have had the cases of fish kills and as a precautionary measure we also closed the PP fishery along the Kurong to make sure that that public health is going to be also maintained throughout the process. There have been a number of other matters like providing fodder for the livestock industry that are going to be um, obviously affected by this flood. Um, there have been animal welfare issues that we have had uh, throughout the flood that all of those matters were addressed also through the work of the department. Well, I know you are busy and you want to talk with farmers and people who are here and really get their stories. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you very much for your time. Professor Mehdi Daroudi, who is the CEO of Primary Industries and Regions SA. He's one of the many organisations who are here and uh, they're, they're talking with people and trying to get things sorted. Now, we were talking a little bit about what farmers need there and um, a lot of uh, <laughs> the um, People who have been affected have been dairy farmers and uh, beef producers and getting uh, the emergency uh, fodder to them has been a, a pretty uh, high priority issue. It seems like that might be um, waning now, that the demand is dropping back a little. But uh, Hannah Trevilian from, uh, from Livestock SA joins me. Good afternoon. Hi, Cassie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So how much fodder have you actually received in this sort of call out that Livestock SA has done to help people? So most producers have been well planned. Um, so we've had about 15 requests for fodder and most of those requests have been fulfilled. We've had another truckload come yesterday which will fulfil all the rest of the requests that we've had. Great. And beyond just providing the, the feed for people, has there been much uptake of adjustment for livestock that might not have feed here on, along the river? We have had offers for adjustment. We haven't had any requirements for that yet, but there definitely is availability for adjustment if people do need it. And obviously this is emergency fodder. This isn't sort of fodder for people going six months or whatever into the, the future. This is just to get them through a tough patch. Are there any more people coming on or do you think that the largely the emergency side of it has waned a little? I think as people are waiting for their plans to come through that sometimes people have come to us maybe last week and things like that to ask for some fodder um, but as you said it is only for the interim and people are making plans for the future. Great well um, I know you've got a lot to do here so I'll let you keep going but thanks so much for joining me today. That was uh, Hannah Trevelyan, who is with Livestock SA. Just a, a bit of an update there on uh, what's going on with the um, the Livestock SA side of things and, and trying to, to make sure that there is lots of uh, fodder available for those people who need to uh, do that. Now, finally today, I think dairy farmers have probably been the main people who have been uh, affected by this. There were a lot of uh, producers... Uh, in the Jervois area who were very uh, keen to make sure that their levy held. They were one of the areas that it does seem that the, the levy was able to hold, much to the relief of the many dairy farmers there. And uh, one of those farmers who uh, 
has been watching with bated breath and hopefully he's been able to uh, get through this and perhaps see a bit of light at the other end of the tunnel is Dino Gazzola. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you. So how are things looking at your place now? I know last time we spoke you were very worried about the levee. Oh, we were very, very anxious. But at the moment now the river has dropped around around 450 mils from its peak and the levees have held quite well. We're um, very, very grateful for what's happened and um, we just feel sad for those who didn't make it. It, it must be. You do have that almost survivor's guilt, don't you, that you can see your fellow dairy farmers that are going through such a tough time at the moment. But still, there were a lot of dairy farmers in your area, so it was quite important to keep your area protected. Is there any way that, that the dairy farmers in this area who haven't been affected are able to help those who are? I'm hoping we can help them in some way or form, uh, possibly through hay or something similar. But I'm not quite sure... Today's meeting has been very beneficial in meeting these people. We haven't had a chance to speak to a lot of the people that have actually gone under before and it's very um, upsetting to see those that have, knowing what we almost feel... Um, oh, what's the word? Uh, yeah, I'm, Just a survivor's guilt sort of thing. It is, it yeah. is, yes, it is, yeah. And what, yeah. what do you need going forward now for your community? What we need forward now is the... Uh, We've been very lucky. Jervois community has been right behind us all the way. We're, and the community is absolutely everything and we all need to stick together. We need to come up with an idea now on what to do for communication. is a huge skill. We need communication between us as farmers and locals and with the government in particular. I can imagine you're going to have a few working bees and things going forward on some of these places that have got a fair bit of water sticking around. Everyone will be having, getting their pumps out, trying to get this water off. I can imagine. How did your cows cope through this, this period? Our cows were relatively okay. We um, were still able to use the swamps themselves, obviously. We did have to pull out pumps. We had a few close calls. One night in particular, we uh, 9.30 at night, we had to dive down the swamp and bring stock home and pull pumps out, etc., and uh, it was very awakening. <laughs> but uh, the pumps, we've got them back in now and the cows are coping quite well with it now because they're back to the usual routine. And the sun is shining. It's really rather warm here. You might see a, a bit of evaporation over these few weeks. Well, I'm glad to hear that, that it sounds like you, you've come through the worst of it. and you do, Well, maybe not the worst of it because recovery can be very difficult, but at least there's sort of things now to, to look at to doing. Yeah, no, I'm just very grateful for the Jervois community being behind us. As chairman of the Jervois Trust, Jervois got behind us and the locals got behind us and we all tried to help our neighbours, but it'd be Woods Point, Monteith, the whole lot. And uh, we tried hard and we succeeded. We were very, very lucky out of most of them, that's for sure. Very lucky. Well, I'm glad to hear from someone who, who hasn't perhaps seen the, the harrowing situation that a lot of others have. So I'm, I'm very happy for you. And thanks for having a chat today. I'll let you get back. I know it's a good chance to catch up with some of your mates you might not have really had much time to because you've been very busy. So thank you, Dino Gazzola. Oh, thank you once again to the ABC and 891. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. Well, that's about it from me. I'll uh, uh, go in and maybe get a, a sausage sizzle now. There's a pretty good spread on here as well to, uh, I guess, settle everyone in so they can have a good old chat. So uh, few things to work on and uh, we'll follow up on those as we move forward from the flooding but thanks uh, Brooke uh, that's it from me in Murray Bridge
Thanks very much, Cassie. Cassie Huff in Murray Bridges. He said there. And uh, Brooke Neindorf with you. As we wrap up the uh, the show today, we didn't quite get to the story that I promoted before about the uh, the YouTube sensation, the uh, the Riverland farmer that we're going to hear more from, Mintu Bra. He has a fantastic story. We're going to hear more from him on Monday, so make sure you stay tuned for that. But if you want to read more about him before Monday... Jump online, abc.net.au slash rural. There's uh, his story there, plus plenty more. You can hear about Brooke Seal, uh, the farmer who wrote a book about his his son Ziggy with uh, a disability, and uh, plenty more stories from right around the country. So make sure you, uh, you check that out over the weekend. We'll be back with you at the same time on Monday. Make sure you have a good weekend. Whatever you're up to, it's coming up to news time, though. It's one o'clock. Keep up to date with ABC Radio. Local stories. Local news. Local programs. On your radio, on your mobile and online 24-7. Get all the latest with ABC Radio. Anywhere, any. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.